This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... We are moving actually towards the end of this outbreak. I can't say when, but with a significant reduced force of infection. That's Lieutenant Colonel Henry Koibe, Uganda's Health Ministry Incident Commander on the country's Ebola outbreak. Details coming up. Also, today is the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. And we catch up on World Cup action. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. But first, our top story, Uganda's schools are closing for the Christmas holiday two weeks early because of the deadly Ebola infections, although officials say there have been no new infections in 10 days. Halima Tumani reports from Kampala. By Friday, all schools in Uganda had sent children home. The early closure was one of the measures the government took to curb the spread of the Ebola outbreak, reported in August, that has so far claimed 55 lives. Uganda's Ministry of Health says the reduction includes both the epicenter towns of Movende and Kasanda and cases imported into the Kampala, Masaka and Jinja districts. Lieutenant Colonel Henry Chobe, the Health Ministry Incident Commander speaking to VOA by phone, said overall the picture in the country looks very promising, but caution remains high. We are moving actually towards the end of this outbreak. I can't say when, but with a significant reduced force of infection, we are certainly sure that we are moving in the right direction. The possibility of imported cases across Uganda becomes slimmer and slimmer or none. Chobe said the country will only be considered safe after two incubation cycles from the last case. In the past seven days, authorities had 4,473 contacts under follow-up, but Chobe says the numbers have significantly dropped to 200. Previously, authorities struggled to convince contacts to report to health centers, something Chobe said has now changed because of sensitization. And if you die, if we missed you alive, we'll pick you because we have an mortality surveillance system where all bodies in the epicenter district are actually tested for Ebola. So we think the lull is real. This is not an artifact of hidden cases not coming to us. The Ebola outbreak in Uganda also saw a high number of cancellations of tourist visits. President Hiram Seven in a speech to Ugandans November 16th said he had received reports of tourists cancelling visits to Uganda, which he described as unnecessary and unfortunate. By mid-November, Uganda had registered 141 confirmed cases of the deadly Ebola Sudan strain virus. Halima Othmani for VA News, Kampala, Uganda. Somalia has said it repulsed an attack by Al-Shabaab militants on a military base in a newly liberated village in central Galagadud region, killing scores. The militants claimed they killed 43 soldiers in the early Friday attack and seized military equipment. Mohamed Aysen reports from Mogadishu, Somalia. Somalia's information ministry says Al-Shabaab militants attacked a military base early Friday morning in the village of Qayyib 
in central Somalia's Gilgadut region. In a statement, the ministry said the armed forces rebelled the attack and inflicted what it called heavy casualties on the militants. The statement gave no details and did not mention any casualties on the military side. Somali state media reported that escorts of Al-Shabaab fighters were killed in the clash. Al-Shabaab media confirmed the attack on the base but mentioned no casualties on their side and claimed they overran the camp and killed 43 soldiers, wounded escorts more and seized military equipment. It was not possible for VOA to independently verify the claims by either side. Somalia's army, backed by local militia, said it cleared the villages of Al-Shabaab militants. Earlier this month, the ministry's statement Friday also said the military and an airstrike killed 15 militants in Lower Shabelle region overnight. The Islamist militants have increased their attacks since Mahmoud was elected in May and vowed all-out war on the group. A twin car bombing in Mogadishu in October claimed by the militants killed 120 people. Al-Shabaab has been fighting Somalia's government and African Union peacekeepers since 2007. Mohamed Daisane for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. The UN marks today, Friday, the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women with a new report on the issue. A study by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime indicates that more than five women or girls are killed every hour by intimate partners or someone in their own family. The report is a reminder that violence against women and girls is one of the most pervasive human rights violations worldwide. James Shimaniola reports from Nairobi. Speaking from United Nations Headquarters in New York, United States Sarah Hendricks, Director for Program Policy and Intergovernmental Division, called UN Women, shed light on intentional killing of women or girls because of their gender. Femicide rates remain at alarming levels, with more than five women or girls killed every hour by someone in their own family. And we know, of course, that behind every data point, behind every statistical point, is actually a lived life. It's actually a real woman or girl whose life has been very brutally and often very abruptly uh, ended just because she is a woman. Hendricks disclosed the details of the problem with a tough comment on the tough conditions under which women's rights organizations are operating. Today's women's rights organizations are operating in an increasingly, increasingly complex environment where they are facing threats to their very survival, where they're facing a significant shrinking space for civil society, and where there's a growing backlash against civil society and against women's rights in particular. The UN report says of the 81,000 killed last year, nearly 60% were murdered by intimate partners or other family members. Asia recorded the largest number of gender-related killings overall 
compared to women and girls in Africa who are more at risk of being killed by domestic violence. In Africa, 2.5 females per 100,000 were killed compared to 1.4% in the Americas and below 1% in Asia and Europe. South Sudan, Africa's newest nation, takes the lead in high cases of violence against women and girls over the past six years, as Betty Morungi, prominent Kenyan lawyer and human rights defender, tells us. Rape and crimes of sexual violence have been perpetrated on a staggering scale. Murungi then turned to the Horn of Africa, where a peaceful atmosphere is now prevailing after more than two years of fighting between Ethiopia's federal forces and rebels belonging to Tigray People's Liberation Front. Since the conflict began, the Ethiopian and Eritrean forces and regional militia targeting Tigrayan women and girls with violence and brutality. At times, the attackers used a humanizing language that suggested an intent to destroy Tigrayan ethnicity. The UN is calling for greater support and protection for survivors, including by police and judiciary, and an end to harmful masculine behavior and social norms. Its report cites Kenya as an example of progress where the government is collecting data on the violence and has established a toll-free line to assist with emergencies. 54 private shelters and rescue centers now operate in 18 of the country's 47 counties. For VOA Africa News, I'm James Shimanyula in Nairobi, Kenya. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Abalone has been a luxury food in China since imperial times. Poachers are feeding the country's appetite for the pricey little mulsuck, resulting in a drop on, in the abalone population in South Africa, once a large natural reserve. Reporter Kate Bartlett visited one abalone aquaculture farm in Hermanus, South Africa, and has this report. Hermanus, a small tourist town outside of Cape Town, is known for its stunning ocean vistas and humpback whales. There also used to be an abundant number of a much smaller sea creature in the wild here, the abalone. But now their numbers are greatly depleted, so farms like this one are legally breeding the seafood for export, as well as putting some baby abalone back in the ocean. It's very difficult because I grow the babies. I can't eat my babies. It's quite difficult. (laughs) Breeder Cabello Manyama may not eat them, but the farm she works at produces these sea snails, primarily for the Asian market where the seafood is highly prized in Chinese cuisine. The majority of the company's exports go to China, including Hong Kong, where a larger abalone can sell for about $70. Abalone suits the Chinese culturally, says Chief Financial Officer Enver Manchest. In the Asian market, abalone is known as white gold. Um, and if you look at a dry piece of abalone, it represents or resembles a gold ingot. And abalone, in a similar way, represents a sign of prosperity. The lucrative business has gained the attention of poachers who want to cash in on Asian demand. Once abundant along South Africa's coastline, abalone numbers in the wild have dropped because of rampant poaching. There are even concerns it could become extinct in the wild. Fishing for abalone without permits in the wild is now forbidden, but the poaching continues, says researcher Kimon de Kriev. 
black market prices for abalone eclipsed record highs just last year. That's another signal from the price side that demand is incredibly high and that the market is growing. De Krief says the multi-million dollar illicit abalone trade is run by organized criminal syndicates in South Africa. In many cases, these groups are involved in other forms of crime, whether it's people smuggling or human trafficking or other, if there's some convergence with other illicit wildlife trades. There have been seizures, for example, of dried abalone alongside rhino horn or ivory. Another consequence of poaching, 30 years ago, local residents were allowed to die for abalone and eat it. But now that's not allowed, says restaurant owner Yanni Malherba. So South Africans haven't been able to get a hold of it. The, the, most of it gets shipped to China or all of it gets shipped to China. Malherba is now trying to repopularize the seafood by putting abalone, sourced from the area's local farms, back on South African plates. Kate Bartlett for VOA News, Hermanus. Police in Malawi have arrested four more people in connection with a mass grave uncovered last month with 26 bodies believed to be Ethiopians who had immigrated illegally and are believed to have suffocated to death. A stepson of former President Peter Mutarika was the first arrested over the grave after turning himself into police on Wednesday. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre, Malawi. Police said in a statement Friday that in addition to the new arrests, they have other evidence involving the suspect's connection. Malawi police spokesperson is Peter Kalaya. I should mention here that the collected evidence connects all the five to the case and it clearly points to the role that each uh, played in the case. Kalaya said police are also hunting for other suspects who are on the run. Authorities impounded two vehicles connected to the case. One is a Scania truck belonging to Tadikila Mafubza, a stepson of former president Peter Mutalika. Police also released a preliminary autopsy report. I should also mention that a preliminary autopsy report on the bodies reveals that the victims died of suffocation. But as a service, we are, we are still waiting for a full report from the pathologists because they are saying they sent some samples for further analysis. The five suspects were expected to appear in court Friday afternoon to answer charges, including murder and human trafficking. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. Today in World Cup action, Senegal's Taranga Lions sank the host team Qatar 3-1. While there's cheering in Dakar today, there was disappointment and frustration in Accra as fans of the Black Stars lamented the loss of their opening match to Portugal. Coming into the game, Ghanaians were confident that their squad under coach Otto Addo would clinch the first win for Africa as all the African teams have fallen in their opening matches. However, Ghanaians were encouraged that the young squad stood up to their more experienced rivals. Yusuf Utuman is a spokesperson for Liberty Professionals, a local football club and academy. He tells VOA's Jackson Mfungane in Accra that the Black Stars coach Otto Addo will have to change tactics in their next match in which they will play Group H rivals South Korea. Well, I think the game was interesting. Um, the game was interesting. The game was, uh, you know, it was tactical to some extent, but uh, I think the second half, Ghana lost it tactically. 
because you look at um, how Ghana defended in the first half. That was that was that was that was that was that was indeed how to defend, especially when you come up against an opposition that is blessed with a lot of attacking talent like Portugal. So the first half, Otuado showed something. Um, he showed defensive solidity. He showed defensive organization, and not for once uh, did Portugal at least threaten you know, the goal area of Ghana in the first half. But then in the second half, I think uh, things, Ghana probably got a little bit carried away by the fact that um, we were able to, to play the ball. Uh, we, were, we were then trying to play out from our defense to through to midfield to, uh, to offense, thinking that, you know, we might get an opportunity to, to hurt Portugal, especially after conceding that first penalty and going on to equalize the game, uh, Ghana thought that you know, this is a team that once we go on and attack, then we are going to get something out of this game. So they went on attacking, 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 and unfortunately, the defensive organization was lost. Now, c coming into this game, so many people were questioning whether these kids, uh, the Blackstars, have the experience uh, and the skill level to go against Portugal. What is your analysis uh, on, on how they're done? On look, looking at their talent right now, how did they do? Well, I think they did okay. I think they did okay. We're quite surprised by the kind of lineup Otuado put out there. <clears throat> because, for instance, in that friendly game against Switzerland, which we have been using in recent times to do our analysis of the Black Stars, we saw a different lineup altogether. We saw a different tactical approach to that game. So, thinking that coming up against another European opposition in Portugal, we are going to see something similar. We expected changes, but not to the level you know with which we saw today. At least we expected Thomas Partey to play. Um, we expected Kudus Mohamed to play, but then. A lot of people didn't expect someone like Ali Duseidu to play, but to, to the surprise of many, he played. And for me, he was he was Ghana's man of the match. Although he was substituted earlier on after getting that yellow card, uh, you know, for me, he was Ghana's man of the match. So we didn't we didn't expect a lot of changes. The tactical approach also changed. Uh, Otuado went four flat in that friendly against Switzerland, and then he decided to go five at the back this time around. So usually. Usually, you know, tactically, when a coach opts to go five at the back, it tells me one thing. When defending, you defend in five, in a, in, in a block of five. But when attacking, you, you leave only three defenders behind for the full backs, that is the right back and the left back, to join the attack. But doing so, you need a lot of defenders who are attack-minded. That was uh, Yusuf Utman with the Liberty Professionals Football Club in Accra. He was speaking with my colleague Jackson Mfungani. Also in today's World Cup action, Iran defeated Wales 2-0. Netherlands and Ecuador are playing now, and later this evening, England and the United States hit the pitch. For all the latest on the World Cup, check out voaafrica.com slash World Cup and stay tuned to all your favorite VOA programs, including the sunny side of sports. And don't forget to look for our World Cup podcast on goal with Sunny and Mokbil. We'll have an update on today's action on African News tonight at 1800 UTC with Sunny Young. Gunmen in southeastern Nigeria have kidnapped 
a local oil executive and members of his police escort. The French press agency AFP says the assault took place Thursday in the Rumu Okoro area of Port Harcourt, the capital of River State. The assailants were dressed in military uniforms and posed as a military patrol in a green minivan. After calling for the convoy to stop the attackers, killed three men and kidnapped the director of the oil and gas service and maintenance company, IGPES Group. The police did not name the executive or offer a motive for the attack. They also did not offer a motive for the assault or those who may have been behind the assault. Kidnapping for ransom continues to be a problem for the country, especially in the Niger Delta, the home of Nigeria's multi-billion dollar oil and gas resources. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The United States remains committed to the Cuban people in their pursuit of freedom, prosperity, and a future with greater dignity, said John Kelly, U.S. political counselor at the United Nations. We are focused on the political and economic well-being of the Cuban people and center our efforts on democracy and human rights and fundamental freedoms. Cubans of all walks of life are speaking out for fundamental freedoms, protesting Cuban government repression and advocating for a better future. In July of 2021, the world witnessed tens of thousands of Cubans across the island take to the streets to peacefully demand freedom. In response to these nonviolent demonstrations, the Cuban government arrested protesters and handed down harsh prison sentences, even against minors, said Councillor Kelly. It resorted to intimidation tactics, internet disruptions, government-sponsored mobs, and forced journalists and human rights defenders into exile. The United States government is holding the Cuban regime accountable for these and other human rights abuses and violations by continuing to leverage targeted sanctions on those responsible for human rights abuses, while improving our policies to maximize benefit to the Cuban people. For example, in June 2022, the U.S. government eliminated caps on family remittances and reinstated non-family remittances to Cuba, which will benefit Cuban families, entrepreneurs, and marginalized communities, such as Afro-Cubans. As Councillor Kelly noted, our policies include exemptions and authorizations relating to exports of food, medicine, and other humanitarian goods to Cuba. We recognize the challenges the Cuban people face. The people of the United States and U.S. organizations donate a significant amount of humanitarian goods to the Cuban people, and the United States is one of Cuba's principal trading partners. Since 1992, the United States has authorized billions of dollars of exports to Cuba, including food and other agricultural commodities, medicines, medical devices, telecommunications equipment, consumer goods, and other items to support the Cuban people. In 2021 alone, U.S. companies exported over $295 million worth of agricultural goods to Cuba, including food, to help address the Cuban people's basic needs. We join international partners in urging the Cuban government to release political prisoners immediately and unconditionally and to protect the freedoms of expression and peaceful assembly of all individuals in Cuba, said Councillor Kelly. The United States stands with the Cuban people and will continue to seek ways to provide meaningful support to them. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government.
And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Iheyes Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Vasco Volarech, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.